would open your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. Let me pray for our time, and then we'll get into uh, opening thoughts, and we'll get into our text. Father God, we praise you, and we thank you for every opportunity that we have to gather together as uh, your people, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who have been brought into the family of God. We're able to gather together in your name and to bring you glory and honor, to worship you, to sit under the teaching of your word. I pray, Father, that as I share, as I speak, that uh, the Holy Spirit would move powerfully in this room and that everybody uh, in the hearing of my words would be greatly encouraged, blessed, strengthened, challenged, whatever they may need, Father. You know all the needs in this room and you're able to speak to each and every need, God. And so I don't presume to know what everybody in here needs or to be able to meet those needs, but Father, you certainly can and you will. And I have that hope, I have that confidence. And so, Father, please be glorified and please uh, help us today. We need to hear from you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, so today in our text, we're going to be looking at a, uh, a miraculous healing that Jesus performs. Now, in the closing verse of the text that we're going to be studying today, John tells us that this is the second sign that Jesus performed when he came to Galilee. So there are actually eight, eight miraculous signs that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. Now, John tells us in chapter 20 that these particular signs were selected for a very specific reason, so that we would believe we would see these signs and that they would encourage us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God. And the Bible says that if we believe those things in our hearts and confess with our mouths, that we would be saved, that we would be born again. And so that's John's mission statement for the book. That's his intended purpose. And when we talk about signs, when I describe a miracle or a healing as a sign, what is meant there is a sign communicates something. When you see a, a red sign that says STOP on it, you know what that means. It means we better stop. And on it goes, whether it's you know, marking a, a particular road we're looking for or whatever the case may be, it's intended to communicate something to us. And such is the case with the miraculous signs in the Gospels. Those are intended to communicate to us that Jesus is who He says He is. When He says that He is the Son of God, the sent one of God, and then he's able to heal sickness and raise people from the dead and cast out demons. We have every reason to believe that he is exactly who he says he is. That is a sign that points to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we have this sign for us today, this miraculous healing. Now having said all of that, as you might expect, belief is the major theme in our text today. Three times belief is mentioned. One time it's implied in the text, but it comes up several times, so that's the theme of this text. That would be the point, ultimately, of this healing. And in this text, we're going to see various types of faith. We'll see false faith, or what you might call superficial faith. We'll see entry-level faith. We'll see complete faith, complete and total faith. So what is meant by faith exactly? You know, you've probably heard me talk about this you know, several times by now, but faith is belief. I already kind of gave it away. The two are kind of one and the same, synonymous. Or you might say complete trust. 
to trust something completely, to have faith in it. You've often heard me talk about you have faith that the chair is going to hold you up. That's why you're sitting in it and you're not really worried about it. But I thought of kind of a more extreme example. Get my pointer out here. I want to throw something up on the on the TV here. Oh, not the TV, the screen. So sorry that the picture here is kind of narrow, but this was the best we could do. Now this is my buddy Anthony. He's a tree worker and he's up in this oak tree that's uh, being taken down limb by limb and uh, he's hanging up by a little harness there and uh, that's that's faith wouldn't you say I mean he's up in that tree those things are bigger than you think when you get up on them man and so that's uh, that's pretty scary and you really have to believe that that harness is going to hold you there Otherwise, if you don't trust that harness, I mean, you might really panic and you might end up hurting yourself. You might get in an accident that was otherwise not, not necessary. So let's go to the next slide. That's, that's faith. Now, that is faith. Okay, so now we're talking about different levels of faith. All right, so the, the, the oak tree was one thing, um, but now he's up in this tree and uh, he's jumping from one tree to another tree and he's swinging by that harness there. And so that brother really has faith in that rope. He has faith in that harness. Now, that's, that's really putting your trust in something. Amen? Let's go to the next one. Now, at this point, he has faith that that crane is not going to drop that tree right down on his head. And so, and he's just fully leaning back. He's got this harness thing, this rope that has him tied to that tree there, and he is just leaning all the way back. And this crane has this massive treetop hanging right over his, his face, it would appear. And so, man, if that ain't faith, I don't know what is. <laughs> and so that's, that's, you know, I think such a great picture for us as we understand what it means to, to trust something. His life is on the line, and he's putting his life into the trust of that rope and that crane there. And we see various levels of faith. You know, if he were to fall out of that oak tree... Uh, you know, he'd probably get pretty hurt. But if he were to fall here or if that were to fall on him, then it's, it's lights out. It's over, right? And so that's faith. Okay, you can go ahead and take that off now. Now, that's faith. And if he were to fall from that tree or something, you know, bad were to happen, that would be serious. That would be grave. But the kind of faith that we're talking about today and the necessity to put faith in Christ, that's, that's serious on a whole other level. It's a lot more serious than falling out of a tree. We're talking about your eternal destiny. And so when, when it comes to trusting Christ, we are putting all of our faith that He is who He says He is, that He did everything He said He would do, and that all the promises that He made to us are true in Him. And we are, we are staking our whole eternal security on it. Right? That is faith. We understand that a lot of people put faith in themselves. They think, I'm good, I've got this, I'm a good person. That's trusting, but it's putting your trust in the wrong thing. Putting your trust in yourself. We're not trusting in ourselves, we're not trusting in a rope. We're trusting in Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation, for our souls. To rescue us from the wrath of God, to save us from the, the power and the penalty of sin, and to one day save us from the very presence of sin to make us sons and daughters of the living God and to one day be in His presence celebrating and rejoicing in our great salvation because of the blood of the Lamb and the price that was paid to secure us. Amen?
And so that's trust. That's faith. And that's what we're talking about today. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring forth uh, in, in one of the main characters of our, of our text. So much of what is happening in our text... You know, people don't understand all of this. We, we, have, we have the benefit of hindsight. Thousands of years have passed. Uh, we understand. We have the Holy Spirit. We, we understand things that are going on here that the people in the story don't even understand at this point. Um, people believed in Jesus, but, you know, they understood that he was the promised one of God, but it, it probably didn't go much further than that. He came as a spiritual savior, but many people didn't even realize that they had such a need. You know, they were looking for a conquering king who was going to set up his earthly kingdom there and overthrow Rome, and that's what they were looking for. But Jesus came for something so much deeper, so much, something so much more important. And, you know, oftentimes people just didn't get that. But that's just it. No one starts with a complete and comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Rarely does somebody on day one have all the answers. I mean, in fact, we never have all the answers. But we start out with a certain level of understanding, and we start out with a certain level of faith, a certain degree of faith, and then begins the journey. We, we begin to grow. You know, for me, I certainly didn't understand it all. Here's what I knew. I knew that I had wrecked my life and that um, I couldn't fix it. I knew that I was not a good person and that I believed there was a God, and that He was holy, and that I was going to be in big trouble if I had to stand before Him giving an account for my life. I knew these things. So I asked Jesus to forgive me and to restore my life. I committed to, to begin to follow Him and walk with Him and try to learn what that even means. And thus the journey began of growing in knowledge, growing in faith, growing in character and conduct. Right? Right? So faith is critically, crucially important. The Bible says that without it, we cannot please God. But God graciously gives us faith. The Bible says faith itself is a gift. And as we believe in Jesus Christ, we begin to grow in that faith. And we have to exert quite a bit of energy. We have to walk with God. We have to step out in faith. We have to be habitual faith steppers. And it gets hard. It gets scary but nonetheless, God is with us. He's faithful. He walks with us because God is committed to taping, taking us to deeper levels of faith. Deeper levels of trust. That is God's commitment to us. Amen? Amen? And that's really what we see in this text today. Progressions of faith. I've titled the message, Level Up, Growing in Faith. And that's what we're going to see. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want in my life. I don't always like God's methodology. I don't like how he brings about growth in, in my life, but um, I know that the fruit is good. I know that the results are good, and so I praise him for that. So that's what we'll see as we finish up John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54 will be our text today. And there's two main points in our text. The first is pitfalls of faith. We've got to watch out for those pitfalls. And the second major point will be the progression of faith. Progression. So, verses 43 through 48, this will be the, the pitfalls of faith. There's really three things that we have to watch out for. Three warnings. Three potential dangers that are ever present for the, for the child of God. And the first is the danger of familiarity. The danger of familiarity. Verse 43 it says, Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee, 
For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So you will recall Jesus was in Samaria. He met that woman at the well, and he ministered to her, and then she went back to her community and told them that uh, she had found the Christ, essentially. And so they come, and they see, and they hear, and they believe for themselves. So they ask Jesus, would you please stay? So Jesus stayed there in Samaria with, with these folks for a couple of days, and there was widespread belief that happened there as a result of the woman's faith at the well and then her testimony to the people and then they came and they saw and heard for themselves and it was a glorious thing and so after that now we pick up that's where we pick up in our text jesus is leaving samaria and he's going to go to galilee and we're told that he is going to galilee because he said that a prophet has no honor in his own country now, this is fascinating. Now, at this point, Jesus, we're told in Luke 4, had already experienced rejection in Galilee, in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. Galilee is the region. Uh, he was there in Nazareth in the synagogue. He spoke. People got furious at his words, and they, they tried to kill him. And there he said it's because a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. You know, everybody knew Jesus. Everybody grew up with Jesus. They saw Jesus. They didn't think there was anything special about Jesus. And so they're like, this guy's lost his mind. What is he talking about? They didn't give him the honor that he deserved because they were far too familiar with him. Well, now Jesus is going back. Jesus is going back to Galilee, and it sounds like, according to this verse, he's going back for that same reason, because they they don't honor him. They, don't, they had not received him. And he's, he's going back now. And, and oddly enough, it says he's going back because a prophet is not honored in his own home country. I've heard some people say that Jesus was actually trying to get away from, the, from popularity. You know, he, he, uh, it wasn't his time yet. And so he was trying to go to a place of, of obscurity. We don't know. But according to this verse, it sounds like he's trying to go to a place where people just would not receive him, right? And so this idea of over-familiarity, uh, this has just always been a problem for God's people, getting a little too familiar, a little too comfortable with God. Maybe you've heard of Nadab and Abihu. Uh, this was in Exodus. God gave strict rules and regulations for what worship was to look like in the tabernacle with the priest, the kind of clothing and there was this altar, you know, I'm, I'm trying to rehearse this from my memory somewhat, so forgive me if the details aren't quite uh, clear, but there was an altar that was supposed to, uh, they were supposed to light, and they were supposed to light it with a particular flame that stayed lit all the time. And the language there says that they used strange fire. They used strange fire to light the altar. And so they did not light the altar the way that God intended them to. Uh, evidently, they just pulled out a Bic lighter and lit it themselves like that, right? And so God didn't take kindly to that. God didn't take kindly to that. You know what happened in the story? Fire from heaven came down and consumed them. And so God is deadly, dangerously holy, and he is to be worshipped the way that he sets forth to be worshipped. And they got a little too comfortable. They got a little too familiar with God. And we see this with God's people throughout the period of Judges especially, you know. Things would be going well for them. They would get away from honoring God and worshiping Him. And they would begin to worship other false gods and get off into all of that. And then God would basically send the, the 
Philistines and neighboring countries in to, to harass them. And when things got bad enough, they would cry out to God again. And then God would send them a deliverer, a judge, a military you know, commander type figure that would bring them this, this battle, a victorious battle. And they're back worshiping God and, and giving him praise. And then after a little bit of time, guess what? They'd do it all over again. And so we just see this cycle over and over and over with the, throughout the history of Israel. There are several more stories I could give. I could mention Uzzah and the Ark. You, you know the story. They were rolling the, the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. They weren't supposed to be doing that. They were supposed to carry it on poles, remember? So much so that there was a whole family that was their job, the Kohathites. They were the ones who were supposed to be carrying the Ark. And they put it on a cart, and they rolled it, and the cart, the cart began to tip, and the ark was going to fall over, and Uzzah reached out to try to steady it. And what happened? God struck him dead. God struck him dead. I mean, that is crazy to us. That's crazy to us. But that's how serious God was about <clears throat> these things in the Old Testament, right? And so I heard one person say, somehow we think that the dirt on our hands is cleaner than the dirt on the ground. With Uzzah, you know, somehow it, was, it would be better for him to hold the ark up with his own filthy hands than to let it just fall, right? And so um, I say all that to say that this is, this is a propensity for all of us. It's a propensity for all of us. You know, we start out in a place where we are on fire. We, are, um, we have just robust devotion and, and passion for God, and, and we fear the Lord. Doesn't the Bible say that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? We honor Him. We respect Him. It's not a, like a terror. I'm not frightened by God, but it's, it's a reverential honor and respect that He deserves because He is holy, because He is God Almighty. But then we get comfortable. Then we get familiar. And then we begin to compromise, and we begin to presume upon His grace, and we no longer hallow His name. And I know that we all can relate with this. I mean, I'm so convicted by these things. This is something that we always have to be on guard against. Hebrews chapter 12 says, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably and with reverence, and godly fear, for our God is what? A consuming fire, a consuming fire. So we are to worship Him with reverence and godly fear. We're to worship Him acceptably. We're to worship Him by His own grace, the grace that He has given us, because God is not to be trifled with. Our God is a consuming fire. And so God help us not to be too, uh, too familiar, too comfortable too lax when we come into the presence of God. But you know, not only do we do this with God, with Jesus, we can, we can treat the gospel like this. We become too familiar with the gospel. Too familiar with the gospel. You know, we start to say the gospel is just, that's elementary stuff, right? This is very common. This is kind of the beginners, the beginning point, if you will. It's the ABCs, right? I'm reading a book called uh, Shaped by the Gospel by Tim Keller, and he says this, The gospel is not the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians, and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. But isn't that what we do? 
He goes on, it is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. Right? When we come to God by faith and we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He died and He rose again from the grave for our sins, that's good. But man, there's, it, it goes so much more deeper than that as we begin to understand man's own plight, our own sin nature, and our need for a Savior, and the holiness and the wrath of God, the justice of God, but the grace and the mercy and the love of God, and then the, the atonement of Christ, the propitiation, the cross, and the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit who comes and regenerates us and indwells us and, and, and makes all of these things a reality in our lives. The further you go into understanding the Word of God, the more rich the, uh, the gospel becomes, and the more we understand the gospel, the more we are transformed by it. Amen? Amen. Amen. The more we grow in our understanding and faith. The gospel is it. That is what God is doing in the world. God is saving sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. All of human history hinges on that. Everything in human history was looking forward to that point, and it all looks back to the cross. To the cross. That is God's salvation for a broken, fallen world. For a people who were created to know their God and walk with their God, yet were separated from God because of sin and rebellion, God is redeeming. God is restoring. And one day He will restore even creation. This broken world, everything that is broken, sin-tainted, every atrocity, every hurt, every grief, all of that is going to be washed away and restored because of the cross, because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ lived a life that we could not live. He lived a perfect life to God's holy law because God is a consuming fire and He expects perfection. And none of us can meet that mark. So Jesus met it for us. Jesus met the mark in every conceivable way. And then He died the death that we deserved as transgressors, as lawbreakers, on our behalf. And then He gifted His righteousness to us. He gave us the gift of salvation through belief. And now we are alive in Christ forevermore through faith. That is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God is saving sinners through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the great sin bearer. He lived, he died, he rose again from the grave. And it is accomplished. Believe that. Trust that. Amen? Amen. That is the good news. We all need it. Well, the next thing we see in our text, first we've seen this familiarity, the danger of that. Next, we're going to see the danger of superficiality or shallow faith, if you will. Verse 45 says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So this is odd, remember? They didn't receive him last time, and Jesus said he was going back there because he knew that he would not be received, right? He, he would not be honored in his own hometown, but now, here he is, he comes, and what? They receive him. They receive him. Now, John, I think, gives us some subtle clues as to what's really going on here. We're told that many of these Galileans here in this moment had witnessed signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the feast. 
Now, this is a, a clue, it's a, it's, a, it's a hint into the so-called reception of these Galileans, and this is pointing us back to an event that took place in chapter 2. Now, you guys may remember when Jesus went into the temple and he began to turn over the tables and drive out the money changers and all of that. Well, right after that, it tells us that he stayed in Jerusalem for the feast and he did many signs and, and people saw the signs and they believed. But then it says this in John chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus knew that they were very intrigued and fascinated by the signs and wonders, but to them it was nothing more than magic tricks. Give us another magic trick, Jesus. We want to see you do some more crazy stuff. Basically, there's a play on words happening in that, in that text. Jesus had no faith in their faith. And so John, I think, is letting us know that some of the same people that were there at the feast in Jerusalem from Galilee are back here in Galilee, and here is Jesus, and now they're like, here we go, all right, here's our opportunity to see some more miracles, to see some more magic tricks, what's, what's Jesus going to do? And so they're receiving him, but we have every reason to believe this is not a legitimate uh, faith. Here, This is a shallow faith. It's a superficial faith. They just want to see Jesus do some cool stuff, right? And so this is something that we have to be on guard against. Surface level faith. Man, you know, I'm from, we moved here from Tennessee, my wife and I, about five years ago. And, you know, in the, in the southeast, you know, the Bible Belt, Everybody is always uh, trying to battle over who was the buckle of the belt. You know, everybody just championed that. Well, we're in the Bible belt, and we're the buckle. You know, we're like the epicenter of it. And so um, <clears throat> it's cool, but it's, it's, it's different. There's a different kind of blindness over there. Everybody is a Christian because it's just the cultural thing. You know, it's, they're conservative, they're Christian. That's just what, you, it just kind of comes with it, you know. God, guns, and glory, you know, that's just the cry of the South, and, um, and that can be challenging when you're trying to actually share uh, the gospel with people, because their immediate response is, oh yeah, yeah, I, 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 I used to go to church, I'm good, I did that, uh, yeah, and so I started thinking, my wife and I, you know, we would go into the jails and teach and <clears throat> interact with people, and this was a real problem, it's like, what, how do you... You know, and, you, and you, you know that folks, oftentimes, they, they, they're not. They think they are. And it's like, how do, but how do you get that through their heads? And so finally it dawned on us, we should just start asking people if they know what the gospel is. And they, they couldn't tell us. They would say, yeah, I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm saved. I'm <clears throat> really, well, can you tell me the gospel? They have no clue. And that's a dangerous thing, folks. That is, a, that is a, a real concern. That's a serious red flag. Now, like I said, when, you, when I first came to Jesus, I didn't have all the answers. I don't know how well I could have told you the gospel. But as time goes on, you ought to know the gospel. You ought to be able to share the gospel. You ought to be able to explain why the gospel is effective and how the gospel came to be and how Jesus accomplished these things. It can be in a 30-second, very basic way, but you got to be able to know, you got to know it to have any confidence that you've trusted it. How can you trust in something that you don't even fully understand or know, right? And so 
that's important. And so I would say a lot of folks had what was a very surface level, superficial type of faith. Perhaps some of it was legitimate, and they were just very basic baby Christians, and it was goo-goo-ga-ga. God is dada, and that's all I can tell you, right? I mean, you know, there, there could be some validity to that, uh, but we have to move beyond that, right? And maybe we have sincere faith, maybe we do have faith, but does our faith have feet? Are we working out our faith? Do we have works with our faith? Does our faith make a difference in our own lives? Does our faith in God, is it changing us from the inside out? Are we growing in our knowledge of Him and our character and our conduct? Does our faith have an effect on other people? Because it ought to. It ought to. And so if we want to move beyond a place of surface level, superficial, shallow faith, we need to really dig deep into the gospel and the Word of God and, and allow it to change us from the inside out and, and to be able to be used by God to encourage and, and uh, love other people and to serve God's people. Amen? Something that we have to work towards. So this brings us to our third, the third danger, and that is the danger of misconceptions. The danger of misconceptions. Our expectations versus Jesus' intention. Mark that. That's a big one. There's a, there's a breakdown there a lot of times. What is it that we are expecting from Jesus versus what Jesus actually said He came to do? Right? So in verse 46... It says, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him, come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So now, <clears throat> Jesus is in Galilee, and he's back in Cana, and uh, you'll recall this is where Jesus turned water into wine, so... Um, John's giving us a point of reference here. And we're told that there's a certain nobleman here. This would be literally a royal person. And odds are he, uh, he served or worked for Herod uh, Antipas. Um, the Herods, that sh should be a familiar name to us. Herod the Great was installed as a king uh, over Galilee by the Romans. He was a ruthless guy. He was a master builder. He garnered a lot of favor with the Jews. He uh, rebuilt their temple for them. He was the guy that tried to have all the children killed because he was uh, so paranoid about the Messiah the, that the, the wise men came to, to worship. Uh, well, one of his sons, Herod Antipas, uh, rose to prominence to the throne there in Galilee, and he's the one who had John the Baptist beheaded, that guy. And so <clears throat> this guy, he's a, a nobleman of some sort, a royal person or officer who works for Herod, Herod Antipas. Now, Upon hearing that Jesus has arrived in Galilee, he, had, he comes desperately seeking help because his son was gravely ill, at the brink of death even. So let's just get a little, uh, get a little perspective here, bust out the maps. Um, I like this map. My sister back in the uh, alley, back in the uh, media room, found this for me. Um, Capernaum, that was uh, Jesus' home base. Uh, the, uh, the guy would have thought that that's where Jesus was located, up in Galilee. That's where Jesus does a lot of his ministry. That's his home base. So it's up here at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And what it doesn't say in the text, what most likely, is that this, this guy 
actually probably lived in Tiberias. He was probably stationed in Tiberias. Um, And so odds are this guy hopped in a boat with his sick child and booked it up here to Capernaum to try to find Jesus, but Jesus was not there. Jesus was in Cana. So can we switch to the other map? So kind of put it, here's the Sea of Galilee, and so he would have probably come from Tiberias up to Capernaum, and he's really desperate at this point, and Jesus is not there. In fact, Jesus is all the way down here in Cana, and so uh, I've heard some speculate that he probably left his child there with the servants in Capernaum, hopped on a horse, and booked it down here to Cana by himself, because now uh, time is really of, of the essence. And so this right here in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine, is the scene of our story right now. And the guy's going to want Jesus to go back with him to Capernaum, most likely to to heal his son. So that's kind of the idea, right? And so, um, you know, this guy certainly seems to have a legitimate need, wouldn't you say? I mean, you know, we, we understand that when something happens to our child and they're sick or they're hurting and there's nothing that we can do for them, it's a horrible feeling. And so this guy, undoubtedly, um, he's desperate at this point. And so he comes for help. And Jesus' response seems rather odd, I admit. Honestly, it even seems rude. It seems rude. And that's not totally uncommon. Jesus says some shocking things from time to time in the Gospels. And, And here would be one of them. So verse 48 Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. It's like, wow, man, Jesus, that's kind of harsh, don't you think? And so with the presence of these superficial believers that we've already talked about, this response would make sense if Jesus were just talking to them. Like, okay, guys, get out of here. I know y'all are here because you just want to see a magic trick, and this ain't, this ain't for you, so Go. But Jesus actually includes this guy because it says there that Jesus said to him. And then he says, unless you people, plural, he lumps them all together. So it seems probable that the people did see this as an opportunity for more signs. But the nobleman, he had a deeply legitimate plea of desperation here. So what what do we make of this? Well, what we know is that bringing about salvation, bringing about saving faith, was always of greater importance to Jesus than merely curing an illness, no matter how grave it was. You know, one thing that is true of every person that Jesus healed, every one of them is, they died eventually. Okay, so there was something far more important in Jesus' mind than just a healing, uh, a a sickness of some sort, whatever it, it may be. Now, the nobleman's need was far more valid than the curiosity of the Jews, but it still missed the mark. It still missed the mark, ultimately. So Jesus seemingly rebukes both of them as one in the same. He's rebuking, you know, what these people are actually trying to get out of Jesus and this guy's misconception of what Jesus actually came to do as both missing the mark. But what we know is that Jesus is drawing this guy in. Jesus has something awesome that he's going to do. And he's ultimately going to bring this guy to a place of complete and total faith in the person of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the promises of Jesus. Amen? And so we know that's what Jesus is going to do. And so what the man came for was important, but it was not the most important thing. And I think that's where we can get caught up sometimes. 
You know, many people come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And honestly, a lot of times it's the fault of pastors because pastors make all kinds of crazy promises and guarantees to people if they would just come to Jesus. They promise them the world. They promise them all kinds of physical blessings and and marital blessings and blessings with children and blessings with jobs and and purpose and, and, you know, having fulfillment and having all of these kinds of things that God may or may not give us. He decides whether He wants us to have those things, right? We cannot promise those things to people, but oftentimes people do. They believe that that's what it means to come to Jesus. Some people come to Jesus to make a deal. You know, something's, it's, it's bad. I've got myself in serious trouble. If you will get me out of this, I will worship you. I mean, how many of us in here can relate with that? You know, God's just not in the business of making deals. I remember a pastor telling me that early on. Um, I was part of a ministry, an addictions ministry, where the, the pastor just guaranteed people, if you come to faith in Christ, you will be set free from that addiction. Well, you know, it's very possible and maybe even likely because when we are born again and God gives us a brand new heart and a new nature and He gives us the power to to begin to fight and even overcome sin, it's not uncommon to see people experience freedom from addiction, right? And it's a a glorious thing. And we believe if there is any hope, it's going to be in that ultimately. But there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. We see people come to faith in Christ and still struggle throughout their lives with addiction, you know? But Jesus didn't promise that if you believed in me, you would be set free from drug addiction. He said, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. You will be set free from the wrath of God that is coming your way. You'll be set free from the blindness and and bondage of being dead in your trespass and sin. You will no longer be under the wrath of God. You'll be a child of God, and the promises of God are yours. They are yes and amen in Him. And that was what Jesus came to do, right? And so we just have to know that. We have to, we have to get honest about that. And that isn't, isn't that what we need more than anything, ultimately? And so I don't mean to diminish anyone's hope and the power of God to break chains and to heal and to bring us out of the bondage of addiction. I've seen Him do it so many times. If we're going to have hope in anything, it's going to be hope in that, right? But at the end of the day, we've got to get down to the core of what Jesus actually came to do. That's what Jesus came to do, and that is what we need more than anything. You know, some people come to Jesus for good reasons, but not the best reasons, not the most important. And so we just got to get that straight. We've got to get that straight. All right, so this brings us to the second part of our text now. I'll kind of pick it up and... And uh, move through uh, pretty quickly. Now we're looking at the progression of faith. The progression of faith. Verses 49 through 54. So the first thing that we see here, the first thing that we see is faith out of personal desperation. And this guy is desperate. Verse 49, the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This is remarkable to me. This is a plea of faith. It doesn't say he believes specifically, but if that ain't belief, I don't know what is, because he's essentially saying, Jesus, if you don't show up, all hope is lost. Come down before my child dies. You know, very often this is what it takes for people to come to Jesus. Most people are self-sufficient. I have all my needs met. Why do I need Jesus? Or they're self-satisfied. I'm happy. 
I'm healthy. I don't need your crutch. Right? We hear that kind of stuff. But when life hits and all resources are exhausted, people might just look up. People might just look up. And that is nothing less than the grace of God right there. When a person gets stripped of everything and all they have is Jesus, all they have is God, and they have hope nowhere else but Him, that is a gift right from the hands of God. But you know, God wants to take us past faith that is only active in times of desperation. Because that's, that can also be a, a whole other reoccurring thing, that we got mad faith when the brakes fall off, right? But uh, every other time, we're just kind of doing our own thing, relying on our own wisdom, our own resources. And so God would have us be people who walk by faith all the time, who acknowledge God in all that, all that we do, that we trust Him to direct our steps in all, all areas. Amen? And so... It's okay, God uses desperation to draw us to Himself, but I believe He wants to take us past that, to where it's not a faith that's just built on desperation, but it's built on the faithfulness of God. But you know, sometimes God will use desperate measures to stir up faith in mature believers, because we get stagnant, we stagnate, and... Uh, we need God to stir things up a little bit. We need God to take us to a, a deeper and fresh place of faith and trust. And sometimes God uses serious adversity to do that, soul-crushing adversity. And uh, when we're in the midst of it, it doesn't, look, uh, it doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. It seems deep and dark and hopeless. But the only hope that we really have is a faithful God faithful God who is there with us in the midst of it, even when we don't feel it, even when we feel like He's not, even when we're convinced He's not, He is because He's faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Even we, when we are faithless, He is what? Faithful. Faithful. He can't help but be. And so God will bring things into our lives that will just throw us into disarray. It'll shock our systems. It will challenge us afresh. It will draw us to Him all over again. It will knock the edges off of us. It will sanctify us and, and, and purify us. That's God's doing. And so praise God when He does that, even though it's hard to thank Him in the midst of it. But if that's where you're at, man, receive it. Grow. You know, if God has you in that place right now, Recognize that God is good, God is faithful, God is working. And God is going to use all of this stuff for His glory and for your good ultimately. And so don't try to pray your way out of it as much as you would pray that God's will would be accomplished in the midst of it. That God's work would, uh, would, would work fully. That you would be sanctified and that you would be strengthened and purified because of the whatever it is that maybe is going on in your life right now. Right? All right, well, this brings us to the next point, faith in the power and promise of Jesus. So we saw kind of a, a desperation, a faith born out of desperation, but now we're going to see a faith that is rooted in the power and the promise of Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Now, most likely, this man would have wanted Jesus to go back with him. But Jesus basically says, look, just go. Go on back. Your son is alive. Now, this is incredible to me. 
Because as I understand it, there's about a 20-mile distance from where Jesus and this man is and, and where the man's son may, may possibly be. And Jesus says, okay, it's, it's done. You know, he just spoke a word. It's, it's already happened. Now, a lot of modern-day so-called faith healers, what they have to have is they have to have everybody in their, in their sanctuary, in the building, with the lights and the smoke and the music and the crowd whipped up into a total frenzy. That's kind of the recipe for a, for a miracle, for a healing, right? But here, Jesus is just 20 miles away, and he says, go. He lives. That, to me, is amazing. That is the power of Jesus. And amazingly, the guy goes without question. He obeys. The guy goes in faith. I, that is awesome to me. So verse 51, it says, And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So as the man was returning to Capernaum, he was met by some of his servants. And they gave him the best news that he could have possibly received, that he could have possibly hoped for. And it was exactly as Jesus told him. And I love this. This is the trustworthiness of Jesus' word. His words do not fall to the ground. If he says it, it's, you can take it to the bank. It is as good as done. And it will come to pass exactly the way he said it would, and it did. You can always have faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus didn't always have faith in people's faith. But we can always have faith in the faithfulness of the Christ, of the Son of God. Amen? He's faithful. He's worthy. So the man asked at what specific time the boy was healed, and they replied it would have uh, been about 1 o'clock the previous day, seventh hour. So uh, some of the commentators suggest that this guy actually took his time to return home. He could have been home much faster than he actually was. So he kind of came to Jesus in desperation, and then he kind of took his time going back, kind of walking by faith, if you will, believing that it is. You know, he said, Jesus, if you don't come back, all hope is lost. And so he knows that either Jesus was right and his son lives, or Jesus was wrong and his son is not alive, and he took his time coming back, but you know, he believed. He believed the words of Jesus, and man, how sweet it is when, uh, when he got that word that uh, his deepest hope had come to pass. And so, this brings us to our last point here, faith in the person of Jesus. So he started out with a desperate faith in this progression of faith. It started out there uh, but then he, he did exercise faith in the promise and the power of Jesus, and it lands with a complete and total faith in the person of Jesus. Verse 53, So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. So the father knew this was no coincidence. He knew that it is exactly as Jesus said, at the same exact time. And we're told for the second time that he believed. He believed. So I, I think Jesus took him into a deeper place of faith and trust here. There was this desperation. He came to Jesus with a certain level of faith. He's, he's putting all of his hope here in this one basket. That's it. 
And then Jesus said, go, your son lives. And he believed the word and he seems to come back uh, taking his time. And then he gets here and finds out it's exactly as Jesus said and we're told, and he himself believed. And not only that, his whole household, because they saw, they witnessed. And so his faith was fully founded, fully developed, fully placed on the validity of who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And that was the goal of Jesus all along. He was committed to this. Jesus was committed to that. Isn't that awesome? I praise God that he's committed to that. I need him to be committed to me in that way. Uh, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Amen? Can we relate with that? We can. But Jesus is faithful. He is faithful, and he is committed, and he is working in us. And he is taking us to deeper places of faith all the time. That's his commitment to us. To save us, to seeking to save the lost, and to take us to a deeper place of faith and commitment and trust in him. And that is what we get to see today with believers' baptism. We are seeing people who have said, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Savior of the world that he died for my sin and he rose again from the grave, that I would have life everlasting. They have believed in their heart, confessed with their mouth publicly that Jesus is Savior, that he is Lord, that he is the Son of God, and that he died for them. And they're saying, I want to go all the way in. That's what I love about baptism, man. You're going all the way under. Amen? Spurgeon has a quote, and I feel like we kind of capture some of that in this. He says, In the ark of salvation, that would be Noah's ark, we find a lower and a second and a third story. All are in the ark, but not all are in the same story. Most Christians are only up to their ankles in the river of experience. Some have waited till the stream is up to their knees. A few find the water up to their shoulders, but a very few find it a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch." You know, Christianity, I mean, you can go as deep as you can possibly go and never reach the bottom of the glories of God and the wonders of God and what He has in store for us. But there are many people who are content to just wade around in their ankles, ankle-deep water, just kind of test the water. Ah, no, not today, right? You get some people go a little deeper, and they're walking around up to their knees and their waist, But you get some people, I want to go all the way in, I believe, and they dive down to the bottom. They are immersed into the Christian experience. And that's what I believe in a lot of ways believer's baptism represents. You know, it's it's a person who is making a public commitment to Jesus, first and foremost. I have decided to follow Jesus. And they are publicly identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection. That's what baptism represents. It's a picture of the grave. A person is taken down into the grave. They have died with Christ. They come up out of the water, and that is a picture of the resurrection, raising up into new life, the newness of life. Paul could say, I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says in Romans 6 that we who have died to sin, shall we continue to live in it? Absolutely not. Do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into his death were risen again into the newness of life? Therefore, walk in that newness of life. Amen? 
And that's what people are saying. I have died with Christ. I've been buried. I've been risen again. And I have decided to follow Him. And there's no turning back. The world has nothing for me. I am following Jesus. Following Jesus. Publicly. And this is a serious thing. A serious thing. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world through the ages have even died for this. And in other places and cultures here and now, if, uh, at the point of baptism, that is when a person becomes marked. That's when it's like, okay, if there's heavy persecution going on, when you get baptized, that's when you have the bullseye on you. That, that now means you've crossed the line. There's no turning back. You're a marked man or a marked woman. It's, it's a frightening thing. Pastor John Fernandez uh, over at Grace was telling me he was in Ethiopia watching baptisms. People knew this, and they were so frightened that they were literally throwing up before they went to get baptized because they knew uh, what this could mean for them. That, that blows me away. And so here today, we have the blessed privilege to be able to identify with Christ publicly in front of the body of Christ and to express our commitment to Him. And I would say, for us especially here, this is, this is the point in which a person, they come to faith in Christ, they get baptized, man, they are members, amen? Members of the church. They become part of the family here. And so when you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you are a member of the body of Christ universally. All our brothers and sisters who have died and gone before us, who are in heaven now, who are all around the, the, the world, we are universally the body of Christ. But then there's the local expression of the body of Christ. Calvary Napa, this, this family right here. And this is kind of like a welcome to the family. You are being baptized in the public of the body of Christ today, and you are now one with us and as a family. Isn't that awesome? And so this truly is a time of celebration as we recognize God's work in these individual lives, but as we recognize God's work in building the family of God today. The family expands. Amen? Father God, we thank you for what we witnessed here today. Thank you that we got to see uh, people who have trusted Christ be baptized publicly. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can always trust you, that you're always good, that you're always working, and that you are committed, Lord, to us. We need that, Father. We believe it by faith, and we thank you for it here today. We give you honor and glory. Thank you, Father, for the cross. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your Son for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you obeyed the Father all the way to the point of death and that you rose again from the grave victorious. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come and you fill us and you uh, lead us and, and guide us. We praise you. Father, you are Trinity and we worship you. You're holy. We thank you in Jesus' name. God bless. Amen. Amen.